Machute Mate recognizes the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and any indigenous elders of other communities who may be listening today. We stand in solidarity in their struggle towards the colonization and land back. Bueno, mi gente, what is good? Machete Mate back with our weekly current events episode. A bit different today, but before we get to it, I'm Leroy. Coming to you from Australia, where last night, Melbourne and the state of Victoria celebrated its biggest religious feast day of the year, known as the AFL Grand Final. This year, due to the plague, it was held in <laughs> Queensland, actually, which for many people was like holding the Super Bowl in China and singing the anthem in Spanish, um, which is a huge deal for the people here in Melbourne. Um, but fun fact... A team called the Richmond Tigers won the grand final. So there's the Richmond connection. What? Hey. What? Yeah. Um, they were. I think they were the odds-on favorite anyway. I'm not really into AFL, so I, I don't really give a shit. Um, other than the fact that it's AFL is like a fucking religion here in Melbourne. Anyway. Jeez. As usual, we got Austin. What's good, Austin? What up, what up? Glad to be back and, here again. And of course, my uh, the fellow beard guy, T. What's good? How goes it? You already know. We're also excited to welcome Conrad and friend of the show, Andrew. Bienvenido. What's good, man? Hey, what's going on? Definitely good to have you. Um, so if you're a Conrad of the show, you know that Latin America doesn't stop and this week is no different. But this week, we saw the culmination of a lot of energy and attention. So we're going to be spending a lot of time on that. What am I talking about? That motherfucking Lucho Arce and Mas won the motherfucking election in Bolivia by a motherfucking landslide. Yeah, man. I've, I've, ah. I've never been more happy to be so fucking wrong. But I'm cautiously happy, though, because, you know, fash are going to fash, of course. Um, we're also going to be spending some time talking about Chile um, and their constitutional referendum taking place tomorrow, actually. So tomorrow, y'all's time. Today, my time, the way that we're, I don't know how the fuck that works. We're going to abolish time anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, which is That's where. That's right. That's right. We're going to abolish pill. time. Get time filled, y'all. <laughs> um, but that's actually where Andrew comes in. Um, literally, he isn't to say a word until we get to Chile. Nah, just kidding. Um, he, has a, he has a Chilean background, so having someone on who has a deeper connection to the subject matter is always important for us. So happy to have him on. Um, just to give a little bit more perspective, you know, because that's, you know, home. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, but before we get into it, a few headlines to keep an eye on. Uh, first off, the press is real life Venezuelan opposition leader, not the fucking U.S. backed pretend Guaido leader. Um, Leopoldo Lopez has fled to Spain earlier today, in whose embassy he had been holed up for some time. Which begs the question: Y'all got elections coming up, and Venezuelans yearn for freedom. So, Chamo, what's up? Like, what are you scared of? Like, if the people are with you, <laughs> where the fuck are you going? Like. Um, which is funny, which is really, really interesting, isn't it? Um, but I'm sure we'll get to that. We'll sort of segue a little bit when we're talking about Bolivian shit. Um, also, calls for OES head Luis Almagro's resignation are growing for many reasons, but oh, specifically yeah. in light of the <laughs> results of Bolivia's election and his complicity in last year's coup. And this includes Evo himself threatening to sue him at the ICC, which is pretty massive. <laughs> He's going to take him to the fucking International Criminal Court. 
Um, but we'll see what happens. And it's funny because he already came out and congratulated Moss and ourselves, you know, what a successful election you had and congratulations and all that fucking bullshit. Anyway, and in Puerto Rico, home stretch in the election, latest polls, at least the ones I've seen, have Charlie Delgado of this pro-convoluted status quo PPD party ahead. But with Alexander Lugaro of the NVC and our boy Juan Dalmao of the Independence Party in strong positions. Perhaps not to win outright, because you know they always it was always a long shot for them to win outright. But given the political and electoral history of Puerto Rico, this is a pretty huge deal that they're doing as well as they are, which um hopefully they do something happens by miracle and they actually do take it. Um now, fellas, Bolivia. Who who wants to take it? Who wants, who wants to kick it off here? Austin, you want to take it, bro? Yeah, so so I got like, as I'm sure everybody else does, I got like, n- not just a hundred things to say about this. Not even just a thousand things to say about this. I got literally a million fucking things to say about this. And first, I feel compelled to to shit on Luis Elmagro <laughs> just a little bit more. I know that motherfuckers, unfortunately, he got reelected to the uh, secretariat of the uh, OAS earlier this year. But, you know, I tweeted about this uh, after, you know, as the election results in Bolivia were coming in, never in, I mean, not only never in my life, but I feel like never in the OAS's entire history has it been this fucking thoroughly discredited among the general public. Like, obviously, we leftists know that the OAS is full of shit, but, I mean, you had reports from what fucking MIT or whatever a, uh, a couple months ago saying, "Wow, the OAS really fucked up here," and now to see them proven so completely, thoroughly wrong, like they their image is in the absolute shitter right now, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Austin, real quick, so you know we know who the OAS is, but some of our listeners, some people might not be aware of what the OAS is. Do us all a favor and and tell us a little bit about the uh, the OAS, the the fucks who ate total shit. So I yield to the great comrade Fidel, Fidel Castro, who had the best line <laughs> on the OAS, which is that the OAS is the United States Department of Colonies. That is literally what the OAS is. It is completely funded and controlled by the United States with the express purpose of doing whatever the getting it's uh, interest taken care of in throughout the entire Americas, right? And Canada is always a very willing partner of the United States through whatever the fuck happens. Obviously, Colombia as well. The OAS is just a, a, a complete goddamn joke of an institution. And I'm the kind of guy that I favor regional integration, right? I say we abolish borders, right? And I don't see how borders can be abolished without regional integration. But yo, fuck the OAS. If Bolivia and Venezuela... And Nicaragua and Cuba or whoever the fuck else said, you know what, fuck the OAS, we're leaving. I couldn't even, I couldn't possibly be mad at them for doing so because of how shitty the OAS is. Right, right. So it's like, it's ostensibly, it's one of those international bodies uh, kind of, uh, you know, designed for countries to come together and uh, quote unquote discuss shit and, uh, you know, sign treaties, trade, things like that. That's a fair assessment of what it's supposed to be, but rather than what it actually functions as yes which <laughs> what it actually functions as is the department of colonies <laughs> don't even think of it any other goddamn way um but getting to the matter at hand bro leroy you said at the top of the podcast you know 
you were happy to be proven wrong, right? I'm paraphrasing something along those lines, right? For people that listened to what we said last week, you know, we gave some very harrowing predictions, right? You know, and what is one of the big, what are some of the biggest reasons why? Because this is Latin America, right? This is the Department of Colonies. Too often, there ain't no fucking happy ending, right? There ain't no fucking happy ending. So as I was sitting there, as T and I were both sitting there on Sunday night, like when the results first started coming in, I was extremely cautious, right? My first thought was, okay, hold on, hold on here. I'm not declaring victory. I'm not showing my ass until I see motherfucking Luis Arce, Lucho Arce, wearing the presidential sash and those goddamn golpistas out of La Paz, right? That was my first instinct. But as the results continued to filter in, and as the margin of victory went beyond 10 points, went beyond 50%, went to motherfucking 20 goddamn points. It was at that point that I felt that now I, I really don't see how, like, maybe I'm going full circle here. And I'd love to know what the fuck you, you all think about this. But now... I don't even know if the military could pull off a military coup just because of how big these numbers were, right? This was, it's funny. I remember saying on last week's podcast, oh man, you know, if Moss can legitimately win by 20 points, maybe they'll have a chance. I didn't think that was actually going to happen, right? I didn't think that was really going to fucking happen. But once it did, I, I, you know, I don't real, rule out some sort of military fuckery. Still, I still stand by that statement, you know. Let me see Arce wearing the goddamn sash. But fuck, man, those the numbers were incredible, man. I, I, I could have never seen that coming, to be quite honest. Yeah, I just want to rewind a little bit. One of us here actually said, oh, could you imagine if the entire election goes off without a hitch and Moss wins in the first rounds? And the YouTube motherfuckers, <laughs> no, blah, 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 blah. I mean, to be fair, like, I wasn't serious about it. Like, I didn't think it was going to happen. And like you said, Austin, I still think that, like, shit is going to go down. Like, because you already see, like, right-wing fascists mobilizing right now. Like, fucking Camacho, after he had his freaking Jordi party, like we say in Puerto Rico, after he fucking was crying on stage of uh, the humiliating defeat, kind <laughs> of tightened everything up. And he's, he's getting his goons to, like, beat random people up to the point where, like, there's an incident where his goons were actually beating up like Mesa supporters. And he released a statement was all like, we're in solidarity with Mesa and blah, blah, blah. You know, basically saying like, oh, we, we were, we, they weren't meant to beat you up. Like we were, we were defending our right to protest and our right to our votes and whatever, but we weren't like, um, so, sorry for that. Um, but, but, but yeah, I think at, at this point, cause ours has already been, um, I'm pretty sure has already been um, sworn in. So it's not like in the U.S. that it takes like three or four months for them. So we're like, he's already been sworn in. Um, there was reports that actually on election night, when those initial results were released, um, a bunch of military people who were actually guarding Mas's headquarters in La Paz. As soon as they heard that, they fucking bounced. It was like a whole group of them and only maybe three or four like stayed behind. So mm. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, this was truly a stunning result. A stunning result. Uh, 
a profound rebuke to the coup government from a year ago. I mean, just you look at the numbers, you know, it, it is true that we what we've seen in the first week, we've seen uh, Camacho and his followers uh, attempt to, you know, their their violent tactics. They've attempted to, you know, launch rallies in some of the major cities in the middle class neighborhoods where they're where their social base is not a lot of great turnout. There's been some clashes. Uh, there's been some violence, but I mean, the numbers are stunning. So the, you know, Moss got 55% of the vote. Uh, Mesa got, he is, you know, again, the, the center candidate, the neoliberal candidate, he got 28% and Camacho got 14%. So what this means is that even if, Fernando Camacho and Carlos Mesa had formed an electoral list, had allied together, they still would have lost in the first round to Moss. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, I don't think, I honestly did not expect this result. You know, our, what we, what, what seemed likely was, again, the, you know, they would, basically they would, they would, there would be some fuckery and in the first election, Oh, it would go to the runoff, and it would be in the runoff that Mesa would take it. But no, I mean it, it's a one hundred percent, just a, a mandate, truly. But like, isn't it wild that like shit is such as it is in Latin America that our initial thought was, well, yeah, of course, of course, it's going to be rigged. Of course, it's going to be fuckery. Of course, like the power is going to go out randomly. Of course, it's going to be motherfuckers and helicopters abducting, like, you know, like, like that shit. And it's almost surprising that everything seemingly went calm. Like, it's incredible. I think the international observers are absolutely crucial and absolutely key here. Another yeah. thing that we talked about last week, we talked about the story of the Argentine, the, one of the Argentine observers getting like detained at an airport or whatever. Yeah. And I remember saying, you know, if there's one thing that leaves me now, granted, that was a fucked up story. Right. But if there's one thing that left me opt at least having a shred of optimism going into the election was the amount of observers that were there, right? The amount of international media attention that this had, right? For small Honduras who just had an election a few years ago, they don't get that sort of attention, right? They don't get that sort of media. So it's so much easier to just turn the fucking lights off and nobody was fucking paying attention, right? With Bolivia, everybody was paying attention. And so what was the one thing that they were counting on? Voter suppression. Right. Just like what they do throughout everywhere in the United in the Americas and throughout the world. Right. Voter suppression is what they were counting on. But the numbers were just too damn big. And that was why another thing we talked about on last week's episode, the Felipe Quispe endorsement. As yeah. soon as I saw that, that was when things kind of started to flip for me where it was like, OK, holy fuck. Like literally all of the indigenous groups might be backing Moss here. And if that happens, the numbers, they're going to be too big. And that's exactly what the fuck happened. And I think having observers there that were there to honestly observe was crucial for that. Yeah. Just quickly on that point, um, in terms of getting attention for Bolivia, huge fucking shout out to Ali Vargas, Casa Chu News, and all oh, those yeah. people who've been there since the beginning, since the coup, putting Bolivia's name on high. Like, I think without Ali Vargas especially, like, it wouldn't be getting the attention is, um, it's, it's getting. And um, and just quickly as well, like we just, just brought up Felipe K. Spain, like the indigenous movement back in mass. For me, that is the real way. That is a real manifestation of let's elect someone and then hold them accountable. Because again, to a lot of these militant groups, a lot of the people who follow Quispe, 
Evo Morales and Mas were just the indigenous face of neoliberalism, and they will actually hold them accountable and push them left and everything. How that will translate necessarily to the U.S., we'll see. Doubtful it will be anywhere resembling what it is in Bolivia. And this is the other side of it, I think, Austin, uh, to the election observers and the fact that there was international attention. The other side of it is just, again, the resiliency of the Bolivian social movements and the institutions that had been built up in the last 14 years under Moss. They, you know, without that, there wouldn't have been a chance. You could have had all the observers you want. Um, It's it wouldn't have mattered without the ability of the uh, organization in place to to withstand the coup and to, you know, peacefully take power again, peacefully used rather loosely considering the number of uh, martyrs uh, that have been killed over the past year in Bolivia. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Those social movements have been able to build actual counter institutions within Bolivia, right? And I would say it's these counter institutions which are what led people like Ali Vargas to do the amazing work that he did. That's right. Right? You know, yeah. Calcet and Coca, right? Which Ali Vargas spearheaded the English language version of that, which I should say to anybody listening, if you want to listen to actual professionals talk about this, yo, please check out the Red <laughs> Nations interview with Ali Vargas. It's extremely fucking good. Nick Estes and Ali Vargas kind of discussing how things went down. Um, it's it's extremely enlightening and brings me to another thing that I, I think we should we should definitely discuss, which is Lucho Arce, right? Lucho Arce, like we just kind of look at all of this, like okay, yeah, Moss is back in power, blah blah blah. Who the fuck is Lucho Arce, right? You know, that's an important question to be asking ourselves as well. See, I think you tweeted from the podcast account something. I I mean, I I guess I can yield it over to you before I steal your own fucking line because I think you know what I'm getting (laughs) to. to. Well, okay. So if what you're saying is what I'm thinking. uh, So again, if you want the granular detail, the resources are out there. There's a lot of good resources. Praise God, there are sources of information in this day and age. Uh, There... Uh, to, to learn about what's going on in Latin America. But let's back up and kind of think about what this means. There are, as I see it, a few questions that are immediately apparent with uh, Massa's resounding victory. Uh, number one is, does the opposition opposition accept it? Now, when I say that, I don't mean that Arce has taken office or that uh, the what, – what I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking that much more broadly – the domestic opposition, the OAS, the United States, right? Do they accept it? Okay, that's first question. Number two, again, like you were saying, Austin, who is Arce? Because, and you know, this might be just a paranoid fear about because of what happened, Lenin Moreno in Ecuador. Okay, Lenin Moreno uh, was vice president, uh, either vice president or yeah. uh, finance minister yeah. under Correa. He takes over... And he does this hard uh, right turn uh, and just completely uh, just does a 180 change. I'm still convinced that the OAS has uh, Moreno's nudes or something like that. And also, let it be known that on this podcast, we do not address him as Lenin Moreno. We address him as Lenin Gringo. So that's right. (laughs) Fuck you, motherfucker. (laughs) Anyways, back to T or Leroy, one of you. Yeah, just quickly jumping in there. Even like on that point, Luis Almagro was vice president of Pepe Mujica. Right. But ostensibly, like, populist, left-leaning, whatever. And look at how much of a fucking dickhead he turned out to be. That's right. That's right. And then so the third question, of course, is going to be the economy. Now, the economy uh, was not doing all that great before 
the coup and before the plague, but there's been a coup and a plague. So there's that issue. The economy needs to be fixed. I don't know how I don't know how far along they are they were with that IMF deal that the coup government was trying to secure, but um, I think uh, I mean that's something that'll probably have to be addressed. One thousand percent. Yeah, the coup government took out a bunch of fucking loans and all this other bullshit, right? Because they're a bunch of motherfuckers and tanking the economy is one of the major goals of the right wing throughout Latin America, right? If they're not empowered, they will tank and, and not just Latin America, without the Americas, right? That's a point I like to make. Um, but it's this is where I, I think more about the character of the candidates, right? I remember initially when the primaries, so to speak, for Moss were going around, were, go, were happening, a lot of people were coalescing around who would become now the vice president-elect, David Choquehuanca, right? David Choquehuanca, who is literally indigenous, right, as opposed to Arce, who was who went to, like, fucking – who got, was educated in, like, England or some shit like that. Anyways. Yeah. Um, not saying fuck him for being educated in England, but yeah. Anyways, um, David Choquehuanca, who once uh, was another person who kind of came out of the social movements – and is looked at as somebody who's like a, a radical member of MAS, somebody who is like an, an, an indigenous, so to speak, right? David Choquehuanca, the new, the soon-to-be vice president. Lucho Arce was a former economist. And that's a, a lot of the reasoning behind Lucho Arce becoming the president, right? Because the economy is going to be a big fucking deal, right? Lucho Arce having the background as an economist and somebody who worked as the uh, – I forget what the fuck his cabinet position was with Eva or whatever – um, being able to focus on the economy because people know that is in fact going to be a major issue in in for this uh, for this new Moss government to to tackle because it's like we we could, we see the headlines already they write themselves right yeah. give it not even two fucking months of RSA being uh, president you'll already see articles oh my god Bolivia well it once had rising GDP oh it's in the fucking tank you see these fucking leftist governments man they just don't know what the fuck they're doing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. If, did you do all your questions? Too? No, no, no. There's a couple <laughs> others to, to consider. And again, these are questions that, you know, the answers we remain to be seen. The next question is, there is a confrontation coming with the military, with the police, and with the reactionary elements and the civil service and what is called in a lot of these left wing uh, governments, the bureaucracy, right? There is a confrontation coming between this new mosque government and the social movements on one side and this these elements on the other side because they will have to be dealt with. The civil service and the bureaucracy that constantly stifle the project, you know, this the, you know, the plurinational revolution that is taking place, uh, they will have to be dealt with. The military needs to be purged. Again, you know, purge... Uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm sorry. Purge doesn't mean that you're like lining people up against the wall or whatever. Okay. A purge is I when mean, you're getting rid of shit. <laughs> can it though? I, look, I mean, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. But what it means is that you're going to get rid of elements that are going to sabotage the project or help launch a coup against you when you win an election. You got it. That has to be addressed. So, and then there's another question, which for the social movements, what now? How do they carry on this plurinational and counterista revolution? How do they carry this forward? What is their relationship going to be to the new Moss government? How do they respond to what are you know really open, nasty, reactionary forces in Bolivia? How do you deal with those people? Because again, people like to say that La Paz is you know 
a it's just it's the the fascist city of Bolivia. It's not exactly accurate. You know, the MAS won a majority of the working class neighborhoods and districts in La Paz. So there is there is power there is intense social conflict in those major cities, especially ones that do have the middle class base of the far right and of the you know I guess standard right. Yeah, uh, uh, I'll, I have like a thousand things to say about all this. I'm sorry. Um, so real quick, first uh, about uh, the so purging the military, right? I thought it was so fascinating how one of the first things that Agnes did after this election result happened was she at least temporarily sacked Arturo Murillo, right? The yeah. extremely controversial minister of the interior. My first thought was, okay, the ass covering has begun. It wasn't me. It was Mario. That's why I got rid of him. You see, what the fuck? Don't throw my ass in jail, right? But then, not even a day later, Mario came back. That gave me, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. That made me kind of think, oh shit, are they preparing something? But nothing has happened, nothing too extreme, aside from like the far right shit that Camacho has been doing, as, at least from the government, right, has happened yet. In fact, Agnes uh, is already booking her fucking uh, ticket to Miami <laughs> as we speak, right? Which, if anything, the, if, the Miami industrial complex, I'm telling you. <laughs> which obviously it sucks ass for us in the United States to have those fucks here. But if I'm the in Moss right now, I'm saying good, fucking leave, right? Do the Fidel thing. Get the fuck out of here. We don't want you here. <laughs> Go the fuck to Miami, right? You know, that's that's how you fucking purge them, right? No, you don't need to do anything extreme. No, you don't want to fucking be here. Get the fuck out of here, right? Let's bring back exile. Exile can be a thing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so a- another big point, another massive point. This is a point I want to drill into the heads of U.S. leftists, right? Plurinationalism was key to this victory, man. It was key to this victory. We saw how effective a party rooted in both race and class can be, man, right? That was a crucial component, the the plurinational ideology of Bolivia, which was able to mobilize the indigenous population of, of Bolivia behind a socialist and working class message, right? Obviously, that's an extremely... Uh, boiled down version of what plurinationalism is, but that to me was so important to this victory. And it's a testament to the institutions. I mean, again, 14 years of a friendly government, not just a friendly government, a government that is going to offer real support to you, uh, allowed these social movements, allowed these independent institutions to be built. It gave them the time. They had the time to do so. And look what happened. In times of crisis, Social, the social movements were able to mobilize. Organized labor is strong and it's, and it's a fighting organized labor in Bolivia. I want to emphasize that again. A fighting organized labor, unlike some countries, okay? <laughs> <coughs> just saying, look, I'm just saying. We're looking at you, AFL. <laughs> um, so they, had a, they have a fighting organized labor. They have the indigenous organizations. These are, you know, for the past, you know, since at least the 70s, these new indigenous institute organizations, people kind of rebuilding a sense their own identity and communities. Decades later, it bears fruit. The seeds that were planted back in the 70s and 80s with these these ideas, you know, they worked out all these arguments that we're having in the United States. They figured out this. They solved them years ago years ago and we're seeing here what they 
are able what they were able to accomplish with that. And the thing is, why do we point to these examples? Why do we, you know, whether it's a Bolivarian government, whether it's a a commune, whether it's the Zapatistas, whoever, the FARC, whom, whatever it may be. Why do we point to these examples? Because we don't have time to make the same mistakes. We don't have time to make the same mistakes. And those of us in the global North countries, especially the United States, Australia, those of us up here have a responsibility not to make mistakes. And we can learn from our comrades in Bolivia. Celebrate a win. This was a win for the international working class, for all of us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the differences between the Bolivia, the Zapatistas, Venezuela, and all that. Because what it goes to show is what we talk about a lot here. The particular of the material conditions, the, the, peculiar, the peculiarities of contradiction in each place. That there's not a one cookie-cutter way of doing revolution. And we're seeing that this is a process that has worked in Bolivia. Has it been perfect? Was mass perfect? Was ever perfect? No. But it was good enough. It was a project that obviously the masses believed in. They no no one thought it was perfect. Quispe has has the biggest critic of Mas and, and Evo, but even he got behind it because he knows this is something to get behind to work towards what what we want. So that goes beyond any one size fits all like puritanical like idea what revolution looks like. And again, and to reiterate something that we always talk about, like we need to be looking to the south, to Latin America, to Africa, to these places where real real. Revolutions are taking place based on the locals' material conditions and not in universities, not in academia, sitting in a fucking armchair, like smoking a pipe. You know what I mean? Like these are things that are actually working and we need to be implementing these and learning from these. Absolutely. Adapt to your local conditions. Let's do a thought exercise here. If you Ooh. could all indulge me. Let's imagine if for this campaign, Moss completely ignored race. Let's imagine they completely ignored the indigenous elements and said, no, we, we need to focus as, uh, ourselves as the working class. Do you think that would have been a, a winning message? Do you think that would have you know, won over by the, the people in Santa Cruz, right? Fuck no. They had to address the, the plurinationality of the Bolivian people, right? Race was a critical component of this, this struggle in Bolivia, right? And had they just completely ignored the fucking local conditions – and said, no, we're not going to talk about race. We're just, we're just going to focus on a, a class-first approach. Dare I say it? Dare I use that phrase, goddammit? Right? What the, what the fuck? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people disagree. But what the fuck do you think would have happened? The beautiful thing about especially <coughs> Caterismo and what the, the character of this, of this revolution has been is the fact that it kind of walks that it, it finds the middle way between a sort of uh, the, the kind of vulgar Marxist class-only approach, as well as the sort of what manifests in two different ways, either as a sort of liberal identity politics that's more concerned with, uh, you know, having oppressors that are diverse versus, you know, uh, an like an all white or all male uh, ruling class. That's one manifestation of that side. And then that, and then it's almost their, their twin is, a, is that kind of nationalistic, almost separatist side of uh, identity politics. Caterismo cut through all of that. They cut through all of that and they figured out 
the answer to this debate that we keep on having, that we seem to have year after year, month after month, day by day, it seems, where their solution was the plurinational state. All right. It, it was building working class institutions. It was strengthening the labor movement, making a fighting labor movement. Because again, remember a couple decades ago, Bolivia had a kind of uh, an AFL-esque sort of uh, labor confederation. It took radical workers, new workers that had joined and formed locals, as well as radical elements within the established unions coming together to form a new radical labor federation, which is now has played such an important role in saving democracy. You know, if you want one of the ways, if you're afraid that your society is about to enter into a dictatorship, a junta, what have you, anything that is, you know, the end of democracy, de jura, end of democracy, right? One of the ways to stop that is a powerful fighting labor movement. And they have that there because of the the organizing that they did because of the social conditions and because of also yes the ideas of Catarismo that integrated these ideas uh, you know understanding the different ways oppression worked historically and contemporarily in Bolivia it allowed them to build this you know the the organization and allowed them to implement the strategy and that's really what it, the the most important question what now because the revolution was always more than just Evo. We're going to see that now. We're going to see a post-Evo revolutionary Bolivia. For the social movements, for the indigenous organizations, and for the labor unions, how do they advance the the revolution? And even possibly beyond MAS, or what MAS may, may want. Yeah, um, I, th- I think uh, a couple of those questions and at least an idea of what the direction is going to be some of those have already kind of begun to be answered right i've been here's the thing arce economist right choke wanka the radical i have been very encouraged by what i've seen from arce so far to be completely honest Uh, um he's already come out swinging saying guess what we're down with venezuela again we're gonna reopen diplomatic relations with cuba right i shot myself i shitted my pants <laughs> when i saw that arce said that they're gonna try and resurrect unasur hell Holy yeah shit. yes that's right it's back motherfucker it's back <laughs> unasur like god I, we could do a three-hour episode on on the dynamics of unasur unasur a whole podcast on it <laughs> unasur was just like the oas right it was just a, a fucking non-partisan uh, international institution that was ba- that was specifically just for South America, but because the United States and their allies started losing votes, they split. They split and created the fake as fuck prosor, which, if I'm not mistaken, that motherfucker Sebastian Piñera is currently the president pro tempore for. Uh, which a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, a light segue into our next chee, segment. Chee, chee. Le, le, um, le. <laughs> but. Viva Chile. <laughs> but before we even get there, but before we even get there, if we could just indulge ourselves in the fact that they won, man, the people won. And like you said, T, this is a victory for the entire working class across the world. This is nothing short of amazing. I think, God, seeing Bolivia already talking about a po- positive steps forward for actual regional integration, my God, like 
I thought this dream was beginning to die, but they've the Bolivian people have have, have brought it back to life. I'm just wondering what the scene was like behind the scenes and like the actual OAS headquarters, the CIA headquarters, the State Department, like what those motherfuckers behind the scenes were like doing. Were they like just ripping their hair out, like <laughs> flipping through pages, like running through shit, like, you know, like like in a movie, like because it must have been like earth shattering for them just to, to see how impotent they've become. Like, sorry for like the term, but how useless they become, how impotent they become. Like it's it's quite it's quite remarkable. His thing, bro. You know, I ain't going to podcast without reminding us of Chavez. Chavez, yeah. who himself deflected a coup, you know, this is not the first time the CIA has been humbled in Latin America, not even in our lifetimes. In 2002, when they tried to coup in Venezuela, and it was the Venezuelan people that fought back against it and restored Chavez to power in in a, just a matter of days, right? They, It's important to remember they can be beaten, right? We can win. That's a crucial thing to remember. Shout out. Um, maybe we're, I, I'm having a, a – I'm going blank, but one of the DSA electeds was uh, – you know, I saw I saw, I saw this. He uh, shouted out um, you know, the Bolivian people and explicitly called the 2002 events in Venezuela a coup, which is honestly would have been unthinkable, uh, is unthinkable in my opinion, you know, from most politicians in the United States – was that Carlos Ramirez Rosa? That's right. That's right. Yep. That's yep. right. Uh, Chicago. Shout out Carlos, uh, another member of the unofficial DSA Borisak Caucus. Um, shout out to the caucus, by the way. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, we can we can move on here unless anybody else has thoughts on Bolivia. I mean, we're all gonna have thoughts on Bolivia no matter what, but we should probably <laughs> <start moving> on. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, like I guess yeah, we just we just jump straight into Chile. Like, and this is another example of people overcoming fascism so like what people don't realize is the constitution that's still in effect in chile is the same one that was jammed through the government by pinochet in 1980 like they had a referendum to get rid of pinochet but the constitution was still in place and over the years um it's been reformed they added these things here and there but it was still largely based on that format like i think they opened up more in terms of social justice and be able to reform it, but you still require this massive, like ridiculous, like super majority to actually get anything done and all this other bullshit. Um, so that's what they're voting against tomorrow. So Andrew, want to thank you for being on our show tonight. Um, very much appreciate your time. I am curious about your, like your thoughts on uh, this constitution vote coming up. I am very curious. I don't know nearly as much about chile as i'm sure you do um so let me give a full disclosure on that um i have I, i'm very much a, a a casual observer of uh chile in that um i've been aware of the political situation of the country basically my entire life just by um you know being chilean but i've lived here my whole life um almost so it's really just been um, a situation where it's, um, I don't want to say like a fascination, but obviously, you know, I, I've got some skin in the game. Um, that being said, it, it doesn't seem like there's any way that uh, they're not going to rip up the old constitution tomorrow. The, the vote seems like it's it's absolutely going to go um 
go the right way. And additionally, um, you were talking about uh, the limitations of the old constitution. They aren't something that is um, reformable. Uh, it's been 30 mm. years since the end of the coup government. Um, and yeah, they've made some gains. They've, they've made plenty of reforms to that constitution. There's been plenty of things that have been taken out of there. Um, but it's been, it's been slow. It's been insanely slow. Uh, and everything has been hard fought. Um, there's still, I mean, I, I glossed over the constitution earlier today just cause I hadn't looked at it in forever. I'm pretty sure there's still things in there that basically say that the, your political parties, uh, leadership can get, um, imprisoned, uh, for something that their membership does, um, wow. which is still stuff from the old days of like, oh, you just <coughs> if you are a workers' rights party, you just can't be you're you're not you're not a valid party in in the Chilean Congress. Um, right, right. They uh, the left cannot be allowed to succeed ever. What something I find very interesting is that. Uh, we see this dynamic over and over again. The left cannot be allowed to succeed. Yeah. And to that point, like, um, I think like to add to that, the actual language is something like, yeah, any party can register and run, but their ideology can't be based on class struggle or something. So it automatically <laughs> eliminates. Yeah. That, that's what any, it was. Yeah. Any remotely leftist party is by law can't without explicitly being banned. It's like, well, then what the fuck? Like, there's no point in us existing then. Like, we can't literally exist. I think also another dynamic that we see in a lot of these Latin American, in a lot of Latin American countries is the demand for a new constitution, the project of drafting a new constitution and implementing it. Oftentimes, at least in the last couple of decades, more often than not, it was accompanied by a really revolutionary change in that society. You know, thinking of Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador. Big difference, though, with Chile right now and uh, these previous uh, movements to change the constitution and to create a new one is that it's there doesn't seem to be the opposition to it is much more disparate and a lot less organized, it seems, versus these other political like older political movements in those countries that were that had been around a lot longer a lot of it seems a lot of this impetus for change is very recent it seems yeah and just on that just to um touch on something that andrew was saying but like based on everything it's going to be passed like they are going to reform it and even what's interesting is that it's not only like left-leaning groups or like communist or socialist groups even within like the right-wing like coalitions like they're split so they even realize that we need something different and it's just the ultra right ultra like pinochet ultra fascists who are want to hold on to it so it's a really interesting dynamic that exists that exists there to your point t yeah so uh, absolutely there's this is so fascinating this is such an extremely important vote that's going to be happening uh, tomorrow in Chile that I, obviously we encourage everybody to be paying attention to as closely as you can. Um, like, like, you, like you all described, like it's very interesting how a lot of the <laughs> – we at Machete Mate, we like to fancy ourselves people who know a thing or two about <laughs> constitutions in Latin America, right? 
Um, I would fucking hope so by now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and <laughs> if anybody was listening to our deep dives, you'd see that there's quite a lot that goes into building a new constitution, right? So to see the way that this has been done has been truly remarkable. And I think it should serve as an inspiration to everybody throughout the Americas, right? What to me, and we should probably get into a little bit of the impetus of the Chilean protest and how this process came about, but what to me that I think kind of stood, set Chile apart from a lot of the, the simultaneous protest movements that were happening throughout the Americas when Chile's protests were going on, for example, in Puerto Rico, right? In Chile, there wasn't just, you know, Piñera Renuncia. There was also, hey, motherfucker, we need a new fucking constitution. Right now, obviously, Chile is in a, a more in a, its own uh, particular historical situation since this is, in fact, the Pinochet Constitution. Right, this is the constitution that was uh, forcibly adopted by the by the Pinochet dictatorship. Right, so it's you can see how people could be uh, persuaded into uh, wanting to change that. Though, of course, there is still a, a strong. Uh, 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 far-right pro-Pinochet uh, uh, presence within Chile, right? And so, a little bit of background. A little bit of background. These protests erupted in 2019 over... What the fuck was it? It was the... Uh, the, the, the it was uh, uh, Fair Evasion. Yeah. yeah the subway bu- fairs. Subway and, fairs, yep. Yeah, yeah, it was mostly high school students um, early on who were protesting it because they, you know use it of insanely frequently uh i i mean like at certain times a day it's pretty much almost exclusively them and then it's the uh business um all the business people on the next hour yeah you see that's that's fucking amazing right that 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 was like the the fucking the the match that lit the whole fucking flame right and it escalated into these mass protests that evolved into, you know, we want a new constitution. We, you know, Piñera Renuncia, who, once again, Sebastian Piñera, the current president of Chile, is a giant asshole, right-wing asshole. <laughs> He's a billionaire. So that should speak for itself right there. Suck my dick, motherfucker. Yeah, he, as I have said in previous podcasts, what is so fascinating to me about all of this is that Sebastian Piñera, he's like, He's been like the Latin American right wing golden boy for so fucking long, right? You know, so to see him, so oh God, oh, it was such a interesting. Like, you want to get a fucking case study in the way U.S. media looks at Latin America? Look at the way people were talking about Bolivia and Chile concurrently last year, right? When Chilean protests were objectively far more violent, but or the 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 government response to them, I should say, right? As opposed to the protests against Evo, which oh my God, it's this big mass movement. Meanwhile, in Chile, when people are literally getting their eyes shot out, uh, nothing to see here. We like this yeah. guy, Pinero's one of our dudes. We fucking love him, right? Um, it's amazing how crucial. Not just to the mainstream right-wing narrative, but to the far-right narrative as well. How crucial Chile and Chile being a stable democracy is, which is a farce, right? It's been exposed as a farce, right? That this idea that, oh, you know, Pinochet, he beat the fuck out of the left. And, oh, you see, Chile is this soaring economy. It's the fucking apple of the eye of South America. No, motherfucker. It's all a fucking mirage, right? Chile has always been one of the most deeply unequal countries in Latin America, right? Sure, there's a uh, there's rich billionaire fucks like Sebastian Piñera, right? But there's also a mass population that that lives in in poverty because of the things that happened under Pinochet's rule. So Chile has always been a deeply, deeply split 
society because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just based on that, like I was reading this thing today and um, I kept asking myself, what comes next? Because for like, based on everything that we see, like it's going to get passed, like they're going to pass a new constitution, but like what replaces it? What's going to be the process to actually replace it? That's part of the vote as well. Like how they actually set up the, uh, let's say the constituent assembly to draft a new constitution. And one of the things that they were suggesting is um, adding, um, adding mandatory indigenous seats. So certain seats are set out for like indigenous groups. Um, but the thing is with that is that the indigenous groups in Chile are quite disparate. So you have obviously the Mapuche that everybody knows, but you also have the Aymara, you have the Quechuas, you also have the Rapa Nui on the Rapa Nui Island in, in Easter Island. So it's going to be hard to actually coalesce those people into one set of indigenous seats when their needs and their material conditions are quite, quite different. Um, but I don't know, Andrew, if you have any more insight of what you reckon like the next steps are, or, like what the next chapter in Chile's fight for new constitution looks like because obviously I, I have no idea I can't even really begin to say because it, it choose it depends on how they choose to draft the constitution um if they choose to take a more um what, what are the two options I'm trying to figure out how to phrase them exactly there's there's two main options that that it will come down to and I'm not talking about whether they to keep it or not i'm talking specifically about how it gets uh rewritten um but i i can't remember how um exactly that is but basically one is is more um pluralist than the other um and like you were saying um i i, I feel like if uh the new constitution is drafted without uh these indigenous groups in mind in specific then it will eventually things might turn back the other way, like further down the road, just because of how um, important, um, especially the Mapuche are um, to the protests now and the political climate of Chile. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at their peril, they ignore this opportunity to, adopt sort of the Bolivian style plurinationalism because at the end of the day, remember like Chile, just like a lot of South America is a settler colony. So if they ignore the indigenous groups, even the Afro-Brazilians, um, as far as I'm aware, Chile has a massive Haitian population as well. Like if we ignore these different groups, it's just going to, like you said, it's just going to fall back into the same sort of cycle and it's just going to be the same bullshit. I'm curious about the balance of forces in Chile. I'm curious about how, what are the institutions already that exist that are going to be shaping this constitution from at least from our side. Okay. I'm curious about that. Andrew, I'm also fascinated again in general with uh, like diaspora politics of all sorts, uh, especially for Latin American countries. What, I mean, is there, is there a consciousness that you've seen maybe that like that you've noticed among maybe family or friends or whomever people online that you follow uh in the chilean diaspora like that are conscious of the changes taking place in chile i'm curious about like you know the diaspora side of things you got any insight there uh really only a little bit um i i think it's pretty safe to assume that most of the chilean diaspora uh is a result a direct result of the uh Pinochet regime, myself included, 
Um, and so obviously they've been looking at this thing with great anticipation and just glued to it. Um, since when did this kick off? Uh, October 18th of last year. Um, that that's really all the insight I have on that one. Um, I, as for the institutions involved, it's, it's hard for me to say. Um, they, the, um, progressive, the, the new majority, uh, parties, or I'm sorry, the new majority coalition in Chile that has been such a presence on the national political stage there in the last 10 years or so, um, with the election of a bachelorette in 2006, uh, is still very center left. Um, it's, it's, it's slow goings there. I don't know how willing they will be to work in, uh, frameworks for plural, plural, plural nationality, um, that I think they probably would need if they wanted, uh, to succeed. I, I, I think that is the, the, the gateway to long-term success in Chile. No, yeah, I, th- I think that totally makes sense. It's very fascinating as well. And I think I, I, the whole dynamics in Chile are so goddamn fascinating, right? Like we talked, we touched upon a little bit the, the Mapuche earlier, which people got to recognize. The Mapuche have been like the indigenous group, uh, the indigenous people in South America that have historically had the fiercest resistance, like, since fucking forever, right? Like you talk about the campaigns with uh, that the Chile that the the Spanish colonial government and then the Chilean government afterwards waged on the Mapuche, and they're still fucking fighting, and they're still fiercely independent, right? The Mapuche are extremely fascinating and very admirable people in and of themselves, and a major player here, as as we've mentioned. And you know, you talk about the different, you know, the co- the coalition in Chile and stuff like that uh, as well. Like I know I've had. <laughs> You know, no big deal. You know what it is. You know, I know I've had uh, correspondence with members of uh, Revolución Democrática in Chile, but there's a lot. Of, you know, like you said, there's a lot of different forces in Chile. Like, I'm very, I'm very interested to see if like the progressive forces and the far left forces can continue because it's easy to build a coalition that says we need to shred the old constitution. It's another thing entirely to build a coalition saying, okay, this is what the new constitution is going to be, right? And I think that is going to be very fascinating to see how that conversation sort of develops. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's a pretty powerful communist party in Chile, interestingly enough. There is. Yeah. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. You can can take it. It, it, No, it's... I'm sure you've got it. (laughs) It's fairly small, but they are... um, They do have... Uh, f- more than a few seats in the uh, lower house. Is it? It sounds like it's one of those things where, um, much like many uh, communist parties that survived the Cold War, <clears throat> I'm thinking especially of like uh, the Communist Party in Greece, for example, because of historical ties with certain like usually it's like a labor union or uh, like some kind of community organizations in uh, major cities some communist parties have managed to, to continue despite being, you know, numerically small, they are influential outsize outsize of their actual numbers because of these kinds of historic, historic ties, especially with, uh, uh, labor movements. Yo, also 
I think it's also important to point out within the context here, uh, Bachelet, as you were mentioning before, Andrew, who was uh, the president a couple times actually before Piñera, Bachelet was elected as a member of the Socialist Party of Chile, right? So I, right. I look at this kind of similarly to the way you see the dynamics in a lot of European countries. And this is one of the few times where I'll actually say that, right? Where, you know, the Socialist Party, it's been in power and it hasn't really done things that were particularly radical. So that has kind of fed to the growth of things such as the Communist Party within uh, within Chile, um, if that assessment sounds accurate. Yeah, I remember, um, I can't remember if it was the last time I was there, um, I was meeting with someone and I was talking with them about Bachelet and um, we were they were saying, oh, isn't it nice? Like, uh, isn't it thrilling to have the first socialist uh, president since the coup? Um, and their reaction was like, what are you talking about? If she's a socialist, um, then I, they, she's fool, sure fooled me. Um, I think that really, <laughs> like, I just, it's so unusual talking about Chile in particular, it, um, in comparison to so many of the other, um, pink tide governments in South America, because you're almost talking about, uh a, the situation of like the united states like it's it's i mean that's how what it's designed it to be like it's not uh like you get in defense of it you get the usual excuses of like oh they're doing great um don't let them do venezuela in chile uh it's it'll be fine just don't let them get into power everything's beautiful there the poverty is so low and I'm I'm really glad you said that because I was thinking about saying that but didn't want to sound like an asshole as far as like comparing Chilean <laughs> politics to like – maybe not politics but Chilean society so much to the United States. And a, a lot of that is because like you said, it was literally the Chicago boys that were design, that were helping Pinochet design the fucking economy, right? That was kind of the point. And I know there's a perception within South America that like some of the – I suppose more – and this – you get this in any Latin American country, right? But I know that there's a perception that for some of the more, I suppose, xenophobic Chileans, there's even that attitude of, uh, you know, we're not Latin American. We're more European, right? There's that sort of culture, which once again, obviously you get that in any Latin American country. But I know there's a, a current of that within Chilean, within Chilean society as well. And a lot of that is the legacy of the Pinochet government. Um, but yeah, you know <laughs> – also, going back to Bachelet, right? This is the same Bachelet who is now what the the UN Human Rights Commissioner or whatever the fuck who did fuck all yeah, about right. Bolivia, but loves to fucking bang the drum about Venezuela. The who, like you said, yeah, and your your friend put it best. You know, if she's a socialist, sure fooled me, right? That is definitely that's I'm stealing that line forever whenever I talk about her now. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's I, there's so much to to dissect about this referendum. All, all I know is that motherfuckers got to be paying attention to this tomorrow and that myself and Ali Vargas and I'm sure a whole fuckload of other people tweeted a very similar thought after Bolivia, which is Bolivia is just the beginning. Chile next motherfucker. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Chile next. And you go see, and you go see Ecuador soon too, right? Chile is the next big step in 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 the in the for the left and for the working class in Latin America and the Americas more broadly to really be able to to seize to seize power back. Yeah, and just and on that, like solidarity with the Mapuche, solidarity with the Rapa Nui, solidarity with the Aymara and Quechua populations of Chile, 
because they need to play a central, they need to be integral to the process. And without that, then there really is no point to the new Chilean constitution. Um, but again, we'll see what happens. And just sort of rewind a little bit. Um, one thing that a lot of people might not realize is Australia has a massive Chilean population. Like here, if you meet a Spanish-speaking huh. person or someone who's Latin American, chances are they're Chilean. So pretty much if anyone our age is fluent in English, if anyone our age, so those of us, what, late 20s, early 30s, is fluent in English, their parents came in the 80s from Chile and they were born and raised here. Wow. If they're a bit younger, no their English is not great, no uh, chances are the Colombian. But yeah, like even the Latin festival here that they have every year is I think the the technical name for it is the um, Chilean Independence Day Latin Festival. So it's a pan Latin American festival put put on by this organization for the Chilean independence or whatever the fuck. So big, big diaspora here. Um, I can't like I have no idea how they feel about this because I'm not involved in the, those circles. Um, that's my fault. I should probably involve myself more in like the Latin American population here. I just don't for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, but also if you have. Um, Want to learn more about the actual coup with the Allende Pinochet on YouTube? All of Battle of Chile is there, so it's like sort of a first-hand mm-hmm. um, documentary film about leading up to the coup and everything. Really fascinating, black and white. It has a really big like Battle of Algiers feel to it, um, but around the, the the coup in Chile. Also, I feel bad. Like, there's literally a thousand other things that I'd love to say about this, and one of them is the fact that. Let's not forget the importance and power of referendums in Chile, right? It was a referendum that literally got rid of Pinochet, right? And motherfuckers are very cognizant of that. And if you want to know, learn about that story, there's a hilarious movie starring Gael Garcia Bernal, which is simply called No, which is it's a dramatized version of the the was the 1989 or 1990 referendum that removed Pinochet, but it's just a good ass movie in its own right. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, also, fun fact: um, Pablo Neruda was a senator for mm. Chile for the Communist Party. So the poet Neruda, who's big in Latin America. Anyway, um, but yeah, Bolivia, fuck yes, Bolivia, solidarity with Chile. Everyone needs to keep their eyes on that because, again, there's, uh, things are going to pass, but I think we all need to get behind how this actually manifests and unfolds. Um, so a lot of solidarity with them and keep your eyes on that and the rest of Latin America. Um, shout out to all our Patreons, all the comrades officiales, all the compas officiales out there. Um, thanks for supporting what we do. And if you do support what we do and want to show us some love and solidarity to help our dreams come true of providing you with everything you need to uh, be more informed about the Latin American struggle, <laughs> consider heading to our Patreon and showing us some love. Andrew, again, thank you for being here. Um, always a pleasure to have um, people, like you say, skin in the game, give their perspectives. Um, otherwise, we're just three assholes talking about a country we have no connection to. Um, so thank you for coming on and hopefully you can come on again to um, celebrate the victories of the new constitution Um, but with that said unless anyone else has anything else to say also stay tuned for part 3 of our series on the uh, the Bolivian constitution which hopefully we'll record soon and release soon Um, but you know this is like we said before this is a labor of love so life gets in the way and shit Um, hopefully we can actually get it out to you Um, but hang tight also, um, check follow us on Twitter. Um, check us on TikTok because we do some we we do some hilarious TikToks, and by we I do some hilarious TikToks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, just trying to just trying to show the show love out there. Awesome, you there, bro? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, so once again, just seconding Leroy there. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, much love 
friend, comrade, brother. Thanks, man, for real. And uh, and if I could qu- uh, once again briefly indulge myself, there's a really awesome panel event a week from now, lit on Halloween, October 31st. Uh, it's going to be at uh, two, uh, excuse me, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Eastern time, and it's uh, going to be a panel about Puerto Rican self determination. Why that's important for people in the United States, in the Americas, to be aware of, to be supportive of. I'm going to be on that motherfucking panel. Uh, longtime labor rights leader Jose Alejandro Laluz, who like helped unionize worker or public workers in Puerto Rico during the 90s, he's gonna be on that fucking panel. He's a bad motherfucker. Um, uh, the homie Maria Torres Lopez from Diaspora and Resistencia is gonna be on the panel. Also a bad motherfucker. Uh, Marusa Cardenas, who's amazing. Justo Mendez, who leads Vamos in Puerto Rico, he's gonna be on the panel. It's just gonna kick a whole ton of ass. We'll plug it. Um, this is something that's also being sponsored by the DSA and various other groups. So please, please check out that panel. It's going, if you want to learn, if you have somehow not had your appetite satisfied by listening to our podcast on Puerto Rico and you're curious more about Puerto Rico, fucking watch that panel. Anyway, that's, that's, that's all I had to add. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely check that out. But, um, with that said, We'll leave it there. We'll see you next time. And hopefully this interview actually saves on like the last one, the lost ah. interview. It still makes Austin sick. So in saying that, Andrew, don't <laughs> freaking shut off your computer until we tell you to. So hang tight. But with that I'm said, right um, I'm not touching anything. Yeah. Cheers, y'all. <laughs> cheers, y'all. Hasta la victoria. Cheers. cheers. Later, y'all. See ya.